You're listening to Hot Leaf Juice, the Tea Community Podcast. Hey guys, happy Lunar New Year. Uh, hopefully we all uh, placed any tea orders this month from China earlier, and much earlier in the month because the insanity that is shipping from China in this kind of two-week window is uh, pretty intense. Uh, so prepare to wait for your tea if uh, you didn't meet that cutoff date. Well, we had a bit of a longer break than I would have wanted, but we're back with a fantastic new episode with Taylor Dry of Mad Monk Tea out here in San Diego. Uh, Mad Monk Tea is a supplier of tea that has just a great small location in uh, Ocean Beach, literally about a block and a half from the actual beach. Taylor has been going on sourcing trips to Asia for about seven years now and has I think the best tea in San Diego and that small shop with like a table you can just sit in and drink tea and talk with the owner and meet new key people. That little shop is such a great and invaluable asset to the culture of San Diego. Uh, it's really amazing. Uh, I try to drop by at least once a month and get some amazing tea and meet cool new people every single time I'm there. Um, Taylor and I, we talk about a lot of stuff in this recording. Uh, we talk about his business and his history with tea, but we also talk about bigger picture approaches to communicating tea culture to new people, uh, sustainable agriculture, which is a big passion of his. I got a new book recommendation based on this uh, this episode. Going to check it out, and how to be successful, just in whether it's business or any goal-oriented activity, like how to meet that goal in the best way possible. Uh, I've always have a total blast uh, when I talk to Taylor. He's just a super chill guy, and if you're in San Diego, you really owe it to yourself to drop by. Now, I'm really grateful to everybody who listens to this podcast. Uh, I just want you guys to know that uh, I want the show to be a great library of tea topics and tea community personalities recorded for the ages, and I want to just thank you guys for uh, being being a listener. If you like this show, the best way to help us grow at this juncture is to review on iTunes store and just share the episode with a friend, um, a tea friend, a regular friend who might be interested in tea. Uh, the That's just really the best way to help. So thanks again for being listeners. The music that you're listening to right now is a really cool track. It's called Oolong uh, colon tea, like one word, by the artist Equity Slate. Uh, you can buy this track on Bandcamp. Uh, his, it's just equityslate.bandcamp.com. I'm going to provide a link in the show notes, though. Uh, Equity Slate makes really chill music. It's just perfect for like a modern gong fu session with you and your rad tea friends, and I'd recommend you check it out. Well, that about wraps up this intro for this this episode. Uh, be sure to uh, stick around for uh, future awesome stuff we've got lined up. And yeah, thanks again for being a listener. Hope you enjoy it. So what are we drinking? Again, this is the Yu. Zhe Ping Hao. Zhe Ping Hao, okay. Yeah, it's uh, from Mysteria Tea House. Um, it's Yiwu material. And uh, it comes from 2003. It was one of the first cakes that um, was produced when the Chinese kind of loosen their regular uh their regulations in <clears throat> in Yunnan province mm-hmm. and when the kind of state state influence like slash state meddling kind of 
subdued a little bit. So a lot of tea masters from around the world came to Yunnan province to produce teas in the old way, mm-hmm. um, using stones. And of course, there was always artisanal producers, but there was a large amount of artisanal production between like 2003 and 2005. And this okay. was one of the first. So I'm drinking a lot of tea from that era, 2003 to 2005 right now. And I really like it. And did you pick this up when you were in, like, early on when you were in Taiwan? Have you been holding on to this for a couple of years now? Yeah, it's funny. I picked it up in Taiwan in, like, 2010. Okay. Which is six years ago now. Was that your first trip to Taiwan? As, like, a, as a, Mad Mo- as a company? As Mad Monk? Yeah, it was. It was my first yeah. trip. And I bought uh, a tong of it, and I think I paid 70 a cake. Mm-hmm. And wow. I went back this year... Um, to Wisteria and they were selling it for 200 and, or sorry uh, $520 a cake so wow. it's one of those cakes that really skyrocketed jeez yeah, that's, a, that, that's a really good we were talking the other day about how like what a, what a good era like that that usually is and now it's just really really inflated now did you go back and taste that is that the one you're saying you went back and tasted and compared your storage over here in yeah, san diego yeah it's part of the early kind of recognition i started to have that it's it's particularly challenging to store poor here in the states and um you know it's funny man because i've, I've spent a lot of time with david hoffman mm-hmm. and uh, he, he has a pretty humid environment some of his cakes actually age quite nicely. He's one of the super rare exceptions. And then it's also really, I think it'd be up for debate whether his stuff is better than the stuff that's aging over in, in Asia. And um, mm-hmm. It's tough, too, because he has a lot of cakes from that era. He, he produced a lot of tea himself, got the raw material, pressed it, and got it out of, um, out of China. So he was one of the lesser-known tea masters of the time. He had been going back to... Yunnan province for almost twenty years at that point. So, yeah. How did you meet? Like, how did you? How did you meet David Hoffman? Like, when I got into the tea industry, um, someone told me to watch his movie All in This Tea. Right. And you know, it was the only documentary that kind of echoed some of my early desires to work direct with small independent farmers and to support organic agriculture. So I picked up the phone and called him, and he answered the phone and uh, invited me to come up to his house and spend some time with him. So I started working with David back in 2009, I guess. Okay. And I would go visit him maybe twice a year, buy some poor and hang out and chat and talk life. And I really <clears throat> was really impressed um, early on by... Uh, his life story and his lifestyle mm. and also just if if you've ever been to his place it's a, a pretty special place on the planet i haven't been yet but i hear it's really really cool just this is, i mean obviously the, there's the, all the drama with the uh architecture building permit stuff uh that i've heard about but yeah it's so cool like i asked you like how did you meet and you had jimmy david hoffman and like the answer is so simple you called him and he was just nice right like you yeah. were just a good guy called him and wanted to be involved uh-huh. and he's like well yeah great you want to be involved please like let me share with other people what's important to me yeah and i feel like that is so simple but like it 
I don't know if like profound's the right word, but like I'm just kind of like, of course, of course, you just called it. Like <laughs> that's so that's so great. I mean, at, at the end of the day, you do have to just kind of say hi to people, right? Like if you've yeah. ever had, like, I don't know if you've ever been really starstruck with a celebrity or whatever, or if that if you're not one of those, maybe you're just not one of those people. But like, no, like, for sure, I have. Just people, right? For sure, I have. I've been starstruck before. I lived in New Zealand, and uh, it was at the time they were shooting one of the Wolverines and I was I was mm. working at a liquor store and um, Hugh Jackman came in no dressed as Wolverine <laughs> and I definitely had a moment of holy shit that's Wolverine yeah. <laughs> a little moment of starstruck that's cool but it was you know he was way bigger than I I thought he was he's he's, he's, he's a, a great guy. he's a big yeah he's big for that I mean the character is like 5'3 huh. but like they cast Hugh Jackman uh, and he's just a great he does a great job with it but hmm. So you, um, when did you live in Hawaii? Because you worked at a tea farm in Hawaii. You lived in Mauna Kea? Yeah, I worked with Takehiro Ino for, uh, for a harvest. Mm-hmm. And, um, man, when was that? That was 2009. Okay. Yeah. This is before you started Bad Monk? Officially? Um, were, you, were you sort of getting in but didn't have the company? Yeah, it was right at the genesis. So I was drinking a lot of tea, trying to find um, good tea, Mm -hmm. the best tea, trying to understand how tea was farmed. And Mm -hmm. I realized, um, you know, a good way to do that would be to go hang out with a tea farmer. The problem was I didn't speak Chinese or Japanese Mm -hmm. at the time. So... um, I started doing research, and I, I don't know exactly how I found Taka, but I found him and uh, applied to go live and work on his farm and brought my girlfriend, now wife, over there, and awesome. we harvested some tea. We, we lived and worked with him, and I got to work with the tea plant from you know seedling all the way to fully matured plant, got to watch him harvest and take part in the harvest and take part in processing. and. Um, get some insight on his philosophy. He practices a very specific ty- style of farming, mm-hmm. um, which which was something I was super interested in seeing firsthand. Okay. Um, and also a style of farming that I now invest in heavily as, yeah. a, as a merchant. What's the, what's the, you know, I see lots of interesting terms for this because oftentimes you can't or probably shouldn't use the term organic if it's not, it doesn't meet government certifications, but I've seen people use terms like Old style farming, huh. or traditional yeah. farming, or harvesting. Like, what, what would I guess? What's the what's the term you would use to describe what, the kinds of farming farming techniques you look for when you're when you're buying? Uh, well, there's a Chinese word, uh, t- Chinese term, "zhuran fa." Okay, it means natural farming. Okay, so natural farming is farming predicated on a very principled approach of soil fertility, um, cover cropping, and encouraging uh, biodynamic activities. So Mm -hmm. um, when you're on um, a farm working with a practitioner of natural farming, uh, they're not using agrochemicals, so you could consider it organic, although oftentimes they they won't get the USDA certification or Mm -hmm. the European Union certification. Um, but most importantly, they're tending uh, first to the soil, and they do that by bringing in um, different plants to protect the soil. Mm-hmm. These can be grasses, cloves. Um, the technical term is cover crops. And so it, I would just call those weeds. <laughs> yeah, a lot of farmers do. But they actually do a lot. They till the soil. They fix different 
nutrients, um, different uh, things like potassiums and nitrates, and um, they also will harbor beneficial insects. Mm -hmm. Create a nice little little canopy for insects that will defend against pests. Um, I think just in general they like predatory like bigger insects <laughs> like like uh, like praying yeah. mantises stuff yeah like that. stuff like that like yeah. grasshoppers and you know flowers will attract bees and um, you know just in general um, no plant grows by itself in the natural environment mm -hmm. so why would we make the tea plant grow by itself on a tea farm so right. it just it just you know, increases the virility and the health of the tea plant, and which ultimately makes it tastier. Right. And uh, I mean, Taka's tea was some of the the first aha tea for me. The right. first time I drank a tea, and I was like, "Oh man, I'm in trouble now." You know, like, <laughs> yeah. I can't, no, there's no turning back. This stuff is just. Do too you remember good. which one it was? He produces a lot of like green tea, I know, and does yeah, he do, does he do any oolong or black tea or? Yeah, he does. He he he's a he's a mad scientist and an alchemist. So he's mm. he does a lot of different styles. I've had white teas from him, oolong teas from him, um, kilbanchas from him, uh, green teas. But my favorite are his first flush greens. I think those are right. quite profound. He learned a very unique processing method from a Japanese producer. So his first flush greens, they they look and act a little bit like some Chinese greens that I've seen. Mm -hmm. um, but they taste, um, I mean, there's no way to really describe or to, there's a way to describe the steamed? taste, but there's no way to relate the taste. Yeah. Uh, it's lightly roasted. Lightly roasted, okay. Yeah, he doesn't steam. He does more of a Chinese-style production, even though he learned it in Japan. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's, he's certified to teach tea farming um, through the Japanese, I can't remember what the governing body is, but there's mm -hmm. a Japanese tea farming certification there's tons of um, technical literature available for tea farmers in japan he's fluent in um, japanese and he travels frequently to study with natural tea farmers in both china and japan so he's just like a lot of people don't don't realize that we have a world-class organic tea farmer on american soil yeah. it's it's as good as um I would argue as good as any of the tea farmers that I've met abroad, hmm. and um, yeah, it was a super formative experience for me. I've heard that natural or organic tea farmers in Japan get like no support; like they get they get muscled out. Uh, that I mean, that hasn't been my my experience. The there's every 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 part of the world there's a growing movement towards organic mm -hmm. tea production and. I hate to even use the term organic. I I prefer to use the right. word sustainable. Or if if you're practicing natural farming, you could even venture and call it regenerative agriculture because mm -hmm. these guys focus on building topsoil and increasing biodiversity. Right. They actually they they make the forests healthier as a result of their activities. It's a lot more than just chemicals. No chemicals. Good chemical. Bad chemical. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's not sanctioned by. A, the same governing bodies that will also license and promote and sanction GMO production and mm -hmm. agrochemical production. I mean, that's what USDA does, right? Like, right. like USDA Organics, a product of theirs, but they also license, sanction, and promote genetically modified agriculture and agrochemical. Agri they do it all. It's all under one roof. So, mm. um, 
Yeah, natural farming is a principle-based ap approach. Um, it was pioneered by a Japanese guy named Masunobu Fukuoka. Okay. He wrote a really beautiful book called One Straw Revolution. Some people call him the Dallas farmer or the do-nothing farmer. And, you know, these farming practices are seeing um, a lot more support, especially, like, in places like Japan and Taiwan, I see a huge conscious movement towards this type of agriculture. Mm -hmm. Japan, um, Fukuoka made a big impact on their kind of environmental consciousness. Um, and Taiwan is also progressing in that in that area a lot. Yeah. And China now too. I mean, China is committed to be the world's green energy leader in the coming decades. And there's a huge cultural movement towards um, taking care of the ecology, taking care of the earth. It's rooted in some of their, their deepest philosophical um, kind of heritage mm -hmm. through Taoism. And it's one of the only political movements that the Chinese government has not only allowed, but has gotten on board. So there's really cool stuff happening over there right now. There's, I feel like Asia's more, uh, considering recent politics, I feel like Asia's more eco-minded than, uh, at least on the government yeah. policy level, than, um, than the West. Yeah, well, they're, they're not fighting about whether or not it's worth doing in the first place, unlike the conversations I've had, <laughs> we, we have over here, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so you go to so when you went to Taiwan for the first time, um, were you after you? So you had already been to Hawaii, uh -huh. uh, and you you had you had an idea of the kinds of tea you wanted, or did you want to find the kinds of farms and then figuring those farms would get you the tea you want? How did you, I guess, put your foot in the in that door in Taiwan when you got there? Um, yeah, I've always had a clear picture of the type of farmers that I want to work with and the type of agriculture I want to support. And, you know, uh, I guess the art of what we do is um, finding those um, those teas and those farms and supporting them. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, yeah, it's it's been a, a constant evolution for me to try to find... Uh, clean teas and cool farmers and people who um, practice the style of farming and take care of the soil and mm -hmm. are interested in um, producing high quality tea that's beneficial not just to humans but also to nature mm -hmm. and yeah I mean I'm constantly it's a I wouldn't say I'm finished with that process I would say yeah. it's it's something I'll continually evolve with yeah, so se seven years in, so in, in a, at least as far as the, the visit your storefront that you have here that we're in right now, um, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how, I guess you're kind of the third generation of tea, <laughs> tea stores in, in Ocean Beach in yeah. San Diego. Um, how, like, you, and I'm sure, I assume you knew the previous owner, right? Like, how did, how yeah. did, how did this really cool space uh, I'm sure we'll upload a picture of it because it's worth seeing. How did like you get to this space specifically? Did you know the, the owner or work with him? No, it was just an accident. I stumbled in looking for tea. I was practicing yoga and martial arts and really interested in investing in my health. Mm -hmm. And so I did a search for tea in San Diego and I found <clears throat> I found this this space, this location. It was under a different name with different owners and. Um, 
at the time it was interesting because it was it had really super limited hours mm-hmm. um, in fact non-dependable hours it was it was a roll of the dice whether somebody would be here selling tea and it was just kind of a stroke of luck that I was able to catch um, one of the owners while they were here and drink some some tea with them and I started to realize um, at that time that maybe they were having some some challenges keeping the business afloat and there was a lack of real commitment but I was also able to observe that a lot of people were interested myself included in having a space where you could get access to premium tea in San Diego and so I kind of I guess you could say rolled the dice and took a risk and I I offered to assume their lease and take over um, the space and start selling tea out of it But yeah, there was two or two owners, um, two two separate businesses here, dating back maybe ten years from now, so or even more, maybe I think probably close to sixteen or seventeen years. There's there's been a tea shop in one form or the other in this space, which is uh, so we have a bit of a tradition going. That's really cool. Bit of an institution. So you know, I I think that this is a really like good tea space. Uh, and I find that like you know, tea spaces in the in the West are either like one of two things. That if they're successful, if they're one, you know, they stick around if they're doing one of two things. At least this is what I notice: is they're either very much like a existing cafe culture, or they're straight up retail, not a chair in the in the building. Mm. Uh, and this place, you can what well, come home with plenty of tea if you want to. And there's also for sitting down. <laughs> there's there's stools, there's chairs. Yeah, uh, but it doesn't feel. I wouldn't look at this place and say, "Well, this is a cafe where I can order my tea and like sort of privately go in the corner and read my book and drink tea." If you drink tea here at Bad Bunk, you're drinking with you. Yeah, it's this is you, there's one table and we're all and we're all sharing it. So, what do you think? Was that a, was that a conscious decision? And do you think that like what makes it like a good tea space? Like why why is this a good tea space? Or well, I didn't change or reinvent the wheel. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know. If you ever get the chance to really travel thoroughly through China and Taiwan and Japan, you find tea spaces that are pretty much identical to this space. It's um, usually a smaller location, um, relatively low overhead, and it's a space for a tea merchant to really connect the city folk to the country farmer. The thing that I was I was raised on a farm and. You know, I grew up in rural areas, and one thing you learn about country folk is that they're very timid of city folk. So since since there were cities, and as, as long as there's been this big kind of gap, not just in culture, but in lifestyle between the, the country and the city, you needed individuals like myself to help bridge the gap. Mm-hmm. So the farmer who grows a lot of tea isn't necessarily going to sell all of his tea. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's easier for him to sell, you know, a lot of his tea to one or two vendors than it is to worry about selling it and translating it on a retail scale. So um, I modeled this after uh, the shops that I had seen over in Asia, and you know, it's men and women who have a very specific philosophy. They have, you could call it like a book of business, a book of farms that they work with, and they take their time during the year to translate the value of their teas and act as a point of contact between the city folk and um, 
and the farmers. So I think what helped me be successful was that uh, I leaned upon a model and a tradition that's like hundreds, if not thousands of years old. I, I didn't reinvent the wheel. So did you, did you think that, um, you know, you go to Taiwan and talk to farmers a lot and you have a, you said, you're, you said you grew up in like a rural area. Are farmers in Taiwan like similar to farmers in America? Like, is it is it no matter where you are in the world, are rural people just kind of you? you were you did you feel more at home and could relate to them? Yeah, totally. They're, well? they're salt of the earth, man. Yeah, you know, uh, agriculture um, is a very interesting profession. It's one of the oldest professions in, in civilization, and the people who yeah. take the time to produce our food and our teas, they they move and operate on a different clock than we do, mm-hmm. and they have different um, different concerns than we do, and they're 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 tied to a totally different calendar than we are, and so. Um, they definitely live uh, what I would consider a naturalistic lifestyle, even though it might not be the naturalistic lifestyle that uh, uh, you know we read about in books. <laughs> it's just a uh, you know they're farming folk, and I, I really like hanging out with I, I like being in the country and hanging out with farmers and you know enjoying the harvest, whatever it might be, and uh, it's fun to be able to work with to kind of have be able to split my time between the city and the country mm-hmm. um, between the United States and um, between you know the Western culture and Eastern culture and it's something that's like a big part of my uh, not just my life but uh, kind of my sanity I feel like I, mm-hmm. I need to get out of the city in order to feel um, understand my purpose within it well, as a you know, as not being one hundred percent just a, a retail guy, mm. uh, your life you know a year in your life moves according to in, in parallel to I guess the tea, the tea farming season in a lot of ways because you go oh, yeah. at, at least twice a year usually to Asia. Yeah, I go in the more. spring and the winter. Yeah, and uh, I do that because those are the sorry about the kettle. That's okay. Um, I do that because those are the periods of time when tea is most active. Obviously, the spring is is a time when it's super active, and then in the the winter, that's also you know the summer black teas are just wrapping up. Some of the winter oolongs are coming in. It's a really pleasant time of year to be there, and it helps me keep continuity with my friends and my family, mm-hmm. and my tea family. You know, my contacts, right, not yeah, not yeah. direct relatives, but tea relatives, and. Um, yeah, I, that's the other thing I really deeply appreciate about having, um, you know, have a, having a life that revolves around a plant is that mm-hmm. it ties me into an annual season, an annual cycle, and it makes my life feel very stable because I know what's going to happen, you know, every spring and every autumn. And but there's a lot of psychological <laughs> security, I think, that yeah. people might not even realize is important just with knowing that, like, yep. No matter what happens, really, like the tea's gonna grow, and yeah. you gotta go buy it. Yeah, <laughs> that's your, you know, you get you, you're guaranteed business trips in in the beginning and end of the year. Yeah. So. Yeah, I like thinking about time, in a cyclic, 
manner instead mm -hmm. of a linear manner. It's like whenever, when I was young and, and time felt really linear to me, it was really hard for me to um, calculate you know, my life across a long time span because it was so many variables. But since I started working in tea and really focusing on, um, you know, since my life became a little bit more orientated towards a specific plant, um, one year kind of reflects every other year. So I can, in planning good, you know, planning uh, intently on this year, mm -hmm. uh, I get to also plan for every other year that follows. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's really exciting. It helps me, it, it gives me, knowing that I do, I, 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 I work really hard this year, um, the lessons that I'll learn will be totally relevant to next year. Mm. Whereas sometimes the, the, the linear approach to time and, and to life can, you're not really sure where it's all going or where it's all going to add You don't get do-overs, right? I mean, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. You learn your lesson but are never given the opportunity to apply what you've learned, then I think people will feel like they're on a, on a hamster wheel in yeah. their life where there's mistakes and lessons learned. But the, you, a, a good part of that is getting back on that horse or re creating a situation where you can reapply that knowledge. And if you take yeah. yourself out of those cycles... Uh, you might just get you might just get scraped knees and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it becomes just a negative experience instead of a an applied learning experience that you can look back on and say, "Geez, I did a thing. I didn't do it well, but there's always next year, this next season. You got came it. back. So. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I mean, tea for me, first and foremost, is a way for me to connect to nature, and so taking the that uh, you can even call it a pilgrimage which is like getting out to um you know the tea fields in asia on a yearly basis and then having some this beautiful natural product to to take mm -hmm. and then you know also furthermore being connected to you know to the to the lunar year to mm -hmm. the solar year in a very you know meaningful way has just like really enriched my life and um, it sounds cliche, but as I get older, I kind of crave more order and less chaos. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes we forget that uh, order is kind of like the mother of freedom. The more order I have in my life, the more freedom I seem to have as well. Yeah. So. so, you know, you've been doing this for, is this going to be seven years this year, 2017? Yeah. Eight years? Uh, yeah. In, um, in August, it will have been eight. Wow. So... Have you, what, what are like, now that you've been running a business for that long, what are some of the key lessons that you picked up and learned? Like, I'm sure there was a lot, I'm sure there was a steep learning curve in the beginning. Yeah. Did you, is, is there anything you really learned in, in, the, uh, in the coming years? I know you said you're still in the process of still finding farms you want to get, like, you're, you're always going to be learning, but like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've covered some great ground in eight years. Yeah, I would say um, the thing that uh, I impart the thing I want to impart to anybody who is is getting on a path mm -hmm. and they want to achieve a high level in whatever that discipline is, it could be the business world, it could be um, you know uh, a, a hobby or I mean a anything that's goal orientated where you're like you have a clear vision of where where you are now and where you want to go is that you have to trust the evolutionary process. And so it'd be 
it'd be really challenging for me to um, relate all the nuanced tricks and techniques and skills that I learned over the course of those eight years because mm-hmm. they really are quite broad. Um, but the, I think the perfume of it is is that if you if you get into something that you're passionate about and you trust the evolutionary process, then you can understand that you, you can't help but evolve. So mm-hmm. over those eight years, it's like I've been forced to evolve yeah. <laughs> when things were going rough. I've, uh, I've strived to evolve when I'm like really passionate about a project. Mm-hmm. And it's just more than anything, it's the, it's the commitment. It's like the, the continuity of showing mm-hmm. up every single day and just getting incrementally better that has given me uh, like more fruit than any other one thing. You know, it reminds me of, um, in martial arts, there's like a great saying that like, you know, that the student goes to the master and asks the master why he's so rad and so badass. And I'm not saying I'm a master at tea by any means, but, um, but the master, you know, says, all right, you know, I'll, I'll give you my secret. He, and he writes it down on a piece of paper and, and folds it and secret, secretly passes it off to his head student and the head student runs off to his room and, you know, in secrecy, you know, he's oh, I got the secret. I'm going to be the best, you know, of everybody. And he opens up the napkin and written on the napkin, it says practice every day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think that's the number one, one big piece of advice that I've seen. Um, I think the big mistake that you can make is a, a break in continuity. And mm-hmm. a lot of people don't face the challenges that are in front of them and really wiggle and squiggle and squirm and and fight to to make the thing that they want to see happen happen um, because there are going to be challenges there are going to be hurdles there are going to be obstacles um, and if you can see you know each challenge as an opportunity for growth in your field mm-hmm. um, then you'll it's going to suck while you're there it's going to be hard while you're working on it but on the other side of that challenge is the knowledge to overcome that specific challenge. And I, man, in business or in anything, there is always another, you're like, there's never not a challenge. Mm -hmm. Like I'm facing um, a handful of challenges right now. Right. And so I would get out of your head the idea that um, in starting a business or starting um, a career or starting a hobby uh, that you want to, achieve a high level at get out of the idea that one day there will be no problems yeah i don't think success in business or happiness in life is from not having problems it's just from being able to overcome it yeah that i mean that 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 metaphorical martial arts master still has to stretch before he yeah she uh uh, works out you know it reminds me a lot of um uh, what a a business professor of mine said at the end of college it was a a class on starting businesses and he said you know you guys got to work on what's in front of you. Uh, it's really tempting to try to design your business card, but like you, you don't have time to like, and that's fun, but you don't mm. have time to design your business card right now. You're thinking, you're thinking steps ahead, and you're not mm. dealing with the problems that are that get there. You, you're gonna you're gonna spend so much time designing your website and designing mm. your business card. You're not gonna do the the work. What can you effectively do now today? Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. and build on that and once you get sort of like there's a social inertia or a psychological inertia that yeah. people get 
and you can have the opposite of that, right? Like, I guess, I guess the opposite of that is, like, us being depressed, right? Like, you have a regression <laughs> yeah. where you feel like you're, 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 you have a, your task is Sisyphean yeah. instead of in, instead of building you up. You, you just see the boulder roll back down. If people get stuck in these uh, kind of cycles, but it sounds like you oh, just sort I've, of pushed I mean, I've through, been there, yeah. Know? No, I mean, what you're talking about is the artist dilemma, mm-hmm. you know? Like, you want your business card to be perfect. You want your business to be perfect. You want your offerings to be perfect. You want mm-hmm. everything to be as it is in your head, which is, like, totally perfect. And it mm-hmm. just... It's ultimately um, that's just like a an, an issue that an individual has with control. You know, you want to control every last detail, and mm. the, the truth of the matter is that creation is more cooperative. You you don't control everything right. that happens. You don't control who shows up that day or what challenges you have, or if your wife's in a bad mood, or you know, like there's so many things you can't control. So you know, if you can. And I'm not saying that I haven't felt this, but if you can um, just recognize the, that that essential dilemma that things will never be perfect the way you see them in your head, mm-hmm. and and settle for putting your two pieces, you know, you know, putting your cards on the table and doing what you can when you can, mm-hmm. um, you start to experience um, something that's actually grander than what you had in your I think that's the real the real kind of joy when you when you give up on the artist dilemma and you just start creating and you accept the cooperative nature of creation what you get is often much more dynamic and much more exciting than you could have ever imagined Mm -hmm. and so it's a participatory spirit to just get get your hands dirty um, and just you know a lot of people are afraid to suck they want to be the master right away Mm -hmm. and I can tell you that like there's there's always the next step even when you do something really well you want to try to do something new really well Mm -hmm. so it's better to just start and adapt than it is to perfect Um, and I think that trusting in your own uh, adaptive potential and, and your ability to adapt and your ability to roll with the punches is going to get you a lot farther mm-hmm. than um, in anything. Um, I mean, it's like it's like this conversation we're having. Like, if you ask me a question, I, I don't need to know everything I'm going to say mm-hmm. before I say it. I just start talking with the faith that what mm-hmm. I'm going to say is good and it's going to contribute to your world and it's going to be authentic and, and from my heart. Yeah. And I just express myself as naturally as possible. Business in, or, or, or a career is just a much more multi-dimensional form of self-expression. Well, you're dealing with the present, right? You know, yeah. You're, not, you're, you're just sort of, by being in the moment, you're able to actually do what needs to be done instead of you know, obsessively planning. But that, that to turn is like a, a cooperative dynamic. That, that is, I think, an important concept, especially in making, in like making good tea. Yeah, because look, when you make a just a really good cup of tea, yeah, you didn't do that by yourself. Like really, people who really get tea and are able to make it really well, yeah, are forced to realize that somebody picked that tea. Yep. Somebody planned how they're going to run that farm. Yeah. Process that tea. Uh (laughs) Like there's a whole world 
of of a not just a, of a causal chain that led to the, uh, the the tea that you're making and like you're kind of like the period. I, I I don't think that this is my analogy. I think I heard someone say this and I've internalized it. But you're like the period on the end of the sentence right. is finally handing somebody uh, or yourself uh, a cup of finished tea and you know you make really good tea whenever <laughs> whenever we're here and I kind of wanted to talk to you about yeah. she's like how do you you know you, you make not only do you make good tea but you usually do a really good job of giving new I've, I've seen I mean I've known you for like a year and a half and I've seen experienced people come in and I've seen new people come in uh. and you give great advice as to how to give how to, how to brew tea for the first time and I think that explaining how to brew tea is actually harder than it looks it is yeah. you know people want to I know that I had this impulse where I'm like okay I'm gonna just give you everything I know I just word vomit <laughs> and I know that that's wrong but that's a, it's a skill not to do that and I know you have kind of a when we when we have tea we usually brew like Chinese style but I know you you sell and you you, you offer people I guess they're those glass yeah like I, pictures for more from more of a western style style brew to just make things simple and, and get people feeling confident yeah, I mean, the, I really appreciate um, the different schools of tea. Mm -hmm. I've gotten the good fortune to participate in really high-level gong fu, mm -hmm. um, old gong fu traditions, uh, high-level cha no yu, old Japanese traditions. Um, I've had uh, like the Turkish style tea. I think as I as I grow in my uh, in my relationship with the, the world of tea, mm -hmm. starting to realize that, man, I just really love drinking tea with people. You know, first and foremost, I like drinking tea that was grown in a responsible manner. And secondly, I like drinking it with good people. Mm -hmm. So I've learned to adapt and be really flexible and not be totally, you know, kind of tied to one ideal way of brewing versus another. Mm -hmm. I'd rather that people have um, have the tools to just start drinking good tea. I mean, for me, the bottom line is um, how many people can I get to fall in love with regenerative agriculture? That's really like at the heart of my work is like, how can I teach people that the best tea is grown in a mutually beneficial way? So, for me, sometimes that's about removing obstacles and just showing people how to get a good cup of tea with whatever tool they have, with whatever time they have. If they've, if they've got a mug or a cup or a bowl, mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't even have the money to buy a piece of teaware. I don't try to rope them into pouring, you know, high-level gong fu cha. I'll mm -hmm. say, hey, man, like, grab that mug from your, you know, from your pantry throw a few pinches of leaves in there and fill it with hot water and wait for the leaves to settle. Mm -hmm. Blow on it, watch the leaves dance and drink it. Maybe it's not the perfect cup of tea by um, you know, the Chinese tea master standard, but now you're having you, st you started your relationship with this plant, with this mm -hmm. leaf, with this thing that's like genuinely good for people and for uh, the environment. Like, let's just you know this the old saying the journey of a thousand miles starts with one step yeah. so I just like opening the door and um, what I found is you have to meet people where they're at right. so I the, the, the 
you could call it a renaissance or a revolution, whatever you want to call it. Tea in America is growing. I think right. the proof is in the pudding, the fact that two 30-something-year-old Caucasian guys are sitting around drinking high-end tea mm-hmm. on a Monday. It was, you know, into into a microphone that's going to be podcast out to a bunch of other individuals who are really passionate about tea. I think there's a, a change in our zeitgeist. More people are yeah. finding that they love it. But the revolution is still kind of young, and there's still a lot of people who are coming to tea for the first time. And, um, you know, I, I think if we're going to get the world to fall in love with tea and fall in love with regenerative agriculture, we really have to do our best to meet people where, they're, where they are. Yeah. And then if they find, you know, handmade teaware, um, really beautiful or maybe they're attracted to the the ritual aspect of tea Mm -hmm. if they want to you know really dive into the depths of all that the culture has to offer then you know good for them and that's awesome and that door is open and now that the 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 bulk of the work is done so that option is there and i and and it reminds me you know of um a a short conversation i had with a gentleman uh at davis Hmm. uh he was sitting next to me uh, and he was we, in between the lectures. We were just kind of talking about, just introducing ourselves to each other, and just talking about the lectures and talking about tea. And he was this guy was, you know, old enough to be my dad. Yeah. And he was asking me like, you know, it's really cool to see younger people here. Um, what what? And he essentially asked me a question that basically asked me to speak for like everybody under forty. Like, what? Why do you like? Why do people like? He said, he didn't ask me why I like tea. He asked. Why did people like your age like tea, and like how do they approach it? And I was not prepared for that question. Huh. Uh, and the answer I gave him was like, "Well, I think we're really easily targeted people huh. because media landscape has become very personalized. Yep. If you want to know all about Chano Yu, you can just, you can just Google it and right. get really precise information. Maybe not you're going to get good information, and there's still the skill of being able to tell when you're being bamboozled and when you're not. That'll never go away." But if you want to be really niche, like just a really niche person, you can. And it is, you can be that way in a day. All of a sudden, you're just really into Shano Yu. That's, that's you now. And the barrier to entry, you used to have to know, know a person and hear about it and go to the library or be lucky enough to have a book around, you know, around that's going to explain it to you. And that book might be decades old. Yep. It's just so easy to get a hold of information. Just why I like, uh, you know, why I, why I like doing T media stuff because I think that more stuff that's out there, more people are going to find it and they can access it whenever they're ready for it. And they're ready, you know. Yeah, I realized at. <clears throat> I mean, this is part of the evolution that I went through, which was I realized kind of early on that I was, I you know. To, to be as in, into tea and as dedicated to, dedicated to the art and science and just kind of like lifestyle of tea um, and to have been as well-traveled as tea, like I was really quickly um, kind of a loner when it came to the depth of knowledge that I had about tea. Mm-hmm. Even eight years ago when I first started my company, I, I had been really into tea for some time before that. And so um, I realized that like that it was at some point I realized it wasn't my job to educate everybody always all the time Mm -hmm. and that 
what mattered more than anything at, from a cultural standpoint was that we supported the people who are making our tea. Mm-hmm. And we supported the, the, the agriculture that was going to be um, sustainable for on this planet or any other. That's really yeah. what matters. What matters is that we have good tea for generations to come. Exactly. And that the consumer learns to appreciate um, and demand and care as much about how their tea is grown as how their tea is made. Mm-hmm. So I, I realized just personally that my my passion and my goal wasn't about teaching people necessarily all the specific nuances of how to make their own tea because that's going to change depending on your your heart your culture mm-hmm. um, your friend group um, your work environment uh, your house like the way that you make tea uh, that's the thing that's a beautiful thing about tea if you if you study the history of tea it's it, it goes all around the world and wherever people get it they make it their own right and so my job isn't to tell you how to make tea as much as to give you this beautiful leaf and say here make it your own and give people principle-based approaches for brewing tea so that's what I I started to focus my my communication on just the basic principles of Mm -hmm. tea brewing and um, you know the the principles I use are the three T's tea time and temp Mm-hmm. And I use tea as a ratio of leaves to water. Usually I do it, I calculate the ratio based on weight in grams mm-hmm. first volume in cc's um, or milliliters. Uh, temperature, I like to control using a temperature variant kettle. Mm-hmm. Um, and time, I use my, my phone as a timer. And by learning the relationship of those three T's, you're able to slowly get a feel for what every T needs and you can give it a number like a like a kind of a special key. Mm-hmm. So I realized that depending on my brewing technique, I would need this weight at this temp for this time. Mm-hmm. And I think when people understand that those are the real those are the three variables that you can play with and that you can adjust, like what are the variables we can't adjust? Like I can't make a pot Mm. I don't know how to make a pot most people don't know how to make a pot but the the pot is a variable the shape the clay the size I can't grow the tea I'm I'm not a tea farmer I I spend a lot of time with tea farmers and I still don't know how to farm tea (laughs) right so that's a variable I can't adjust so in terms of making the tea what are the aspects that you have control over and Mm. the first are the the tea time and temp of course you can create a beautiful space for tea and you can choose the teaware that you want, but mm-hmm. I think those things become very personal very fast. Right. So the the three things that um, you know all <laughs> what do they say? Uh, I think Riku has a poem. It's like tea is not but this: boil the water, steep the tea, drink the tea, <laughs> you know, serve <laughs> the tea. Something very simple. I'm yeah, I, yeah. I'm sure I'm butchering it, but and it might not even be Riku. It's some old yeah. Japanese tea master. Maybe you could put that in your show notes. I'll, but I'll Google Sanoriku. Sen- yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah. I, what I want to do is translate the essence of what we're doing. Like, hey, man, this is a leaf. I heat some water and I put it in the vessel and then I drink it, right. and it's awesome. And it makes my world better, and it makes my day brighter. And I share it with people who are really cool and have all these beautiful moments around this really simple act. And these are pretty much the only three things you need to know. Everything else from that point on. Um, 
you can make your own, you can utilize to express yourself. I, one of the challenges I had as a tea purveyor early on was like was like teapots. You know, I was really into yixing teapots, really into mm-hmm. handmade teaware. Um, I met a bunch of talented artists, yeah. but a teapot is such a crazy personal thing. Being it's able, like a, it's to, like painting. It's a like wall, a painting, right? Like right? You're either you're gonna you're gonna like it enough to buy it, or you're you're just not gonna do it. <laughs> right. So I kept figure, trying to think like, man, this thing is so individual. Like, how can I offer uh, my clientele? Um, a, you know, the only possible way is to is to be like a focused wear purveyor, man, and offer this crazy broad range. And um, even if it's in one given style, even if you're like a ceramicist yourself, everything has your 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 signature to it. But mm-hmm. you're not going to be necessarily a successful ceramicist if you're only making a pot. No, you got to make the cups and the trays and the and the pitchers and the um, you know, and the plates, the chop hands, you got to make it all. So, mm-hmm. um, I realized like, man, it's a, it's a very personal thing. What, what isn't something we can all talk about. We can all share whether you like it's, it's relevant, whether you like Lipton tea or you like the highest quality first flush Lishan, mm-hmm. uh, is you still need to pay attention to tea time and time. It's still going to make or break that cup. It's, it's still going to be relevant. So that's what I, I and then from there I'm happy to answer questions you know if people want to learn about um, what's the best way to drink tea in the office space what's the best way to drink tea you know with my son or what's how do I get into gong fu tea there's people out there who know much more about the ritual of gong fu than I do how do I get into channel you know I'm I can act, I like acting more as a bridge to all of those yeah you know uh, as like an intermediary than anything um, you said something when when I was here Friday, and those um, those brothers came in, and I think they asked you like, "Wait, what's what's Gong Fu?" And and you used the best word to describe <laughs> Gong Fu, and I just laughed at you. You know, you you said Gong Fu, uh, Gong Fu is it's a it's just tools, <laughs> yeah, to make your day ratter, to make your day cooler, <laughs> right? Like, right. and I think the operative word isn't isn't ratter there. Yeah. The operative word is is tools. Yeah. You know, and that's what I, I forget. I think I was talking with Jonathan, old yeah. pro, and we were talking about brewing tea, gong fu, and, I, and, and I, I, I don't, I resist a little bit the word ritual. Yeah. Because I was like, you know, if, if this is a ritual, then French cooking's a ritual. Totally. Right? I mean, and, and if you want to call that a ritual too, then fine. Like, we can have a really expansive use of the word ritual, and I'm sure there's value in that. Yeah. But when I think of ritual, I think of things that are scripted. And it's definitely not scripted. Right. It's just a set of knowledge and tools that you are able to make use make use of by especially using those three T's that you talked about the the time and the temperature and the tea you're using totally I mean I like to ask all the questions I can ask I think if you're getting into tea you want to ask um, you know you want to ask a lot of different questions you you want to know like why are you brewing tea that way you want to go on a little bit of a, uh, a you want to be a little bit of a detective and you know explore see like why do the why do the Japanese whisk their tea mm-hmm. why do the Chinese you know use these little pots why do the British use these big pots like those questions give you insight into what the tools that they're using are designed for mm-hmm. and when science is so science is asking the question why and technology is 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 an answer to how 
So after you ask all these questions, you realize, oh, like I like using the little pot because I can um, turn the tea into a time and not just a cup. It helps me steep it multiple times across time and space. And so the little pot helps me not just make a cup of tea, but make cups of tea, right. which ex you know expand my experience out through time. And if that's something that interests you, now you have a technique. Yeah. Now you have a tool. Now you have a how. How do I turn tea into a time? Well, you get a really beautiful small cup. That's one of the ways to turn tea into it, or a really beautiful small pot. That's mm -hmm. one of the ways that we've, we've utilized to turn tea into a time. Of course, you know, matcha is making one cup, so what they do is they really focus a ritual around it. So they turn tea into a time using ritualistic um, choreographed movements and dialogue, and that's another way to turn tea into a time. And you just can, if you study the, the, the tea world broad enough, you'll get a sense of where you fit mm -hmm. and where you wanna fit and what, what's really relevant to you. Um, I know a lot of people nowadays, they just, I think underneath it all, they just want to hang out with good people, talk about life, drink something that's healthy and delicious, um, and have a moment that is, is different than maybe what you would experience at a bar or even over food. Like a moment that's really, I think, fundamentally human where you sit, you don't move too much, but you engage in, in this like really comfortable, stimulating experience. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people turn to television for that right now, mm -hmm. or to gaming, or to, you know, I think, I think as human beings, we need to sit down and not do anything for at least an hour a day. Yeah. And it's just, when you sit and you do tea, which is a really simple thing with other people, the difference is instead of being inundated with other people's stories, you kind of like tell your own stories. And I think that's just fundamental to what tea has to offer. And it can be, you can make it as ritualistic and ceremonial as you want, or you can make it as simple as you want. Um, I experiment with all of them and I study all of them. And mm -hmm. um, I think they're all valuable and they yeah. all have their place. Yeah, and like in tea, tea culture globally, right? So, so not tea culture is singular, but tea cultures globally are an interesting reflection of the world in which those people live, right? People who people yeah. in the British Empire lived in a different world than people in Yunnan, China, who live in a different world than people in in Japan or yeah, or, or even or Taiwan. America. Like you know, in Taiwan they have a totally unique expression of Gong Fu. Mm -hmm. In China they have an ex a unique expression of Gong Fu. Um, in Japan, they have both Chano Yu and Cha Dao, which are two different ways of approaching the leaf. And it's like asking, like, what's more beautiful, like the Greek Parthenon or the City Opera House, Sydney yeah, Opera yeah. House? It's like, well, hold on a second. Why does one have to be more beautiful? They're just relevant to the time and the place and the culture and the people who are using them. Mm -hmm. So I, I like a, um, I, I like, I invite people to explore those areas first. And then, if they find a style of tea that they gravitate to, then you know jump into it. And mm -hmm. I think the cool thing is, is like uh, t the metaphor I like to use a lot is like hardware and software. Like mm -hmm. uh, tea is kind of like the software, <laughs> and there's so many different types of hardware that you can run on it. And so I like you know I've always seen myself as somebody who likes to offer the best software. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, that software is going to be relevant regardless of what type of hardware you're using, regardless of what type of tradition or ritual you practice. Um, you know, you still need tea to, to kind of complete the whole picture. Yeah, do, do you think, uh, and it sounds like, I mean, obviously you're very, you know, you're very open-minded and situated. Uh, do you think that there is a wrong way to enjoy tea? And by that I mean, is there a way to, I guess, like, is there a way to um, misuse the opportunity that you have when you have tab tea? Right? Is, there like a, is, there a, is, there a, is there a backwards or, or inverse way to do it that people should, you know, maybe should consider avoiding? Yeah, I think there's a wrong way to farm tea. Okay. I think there's a way, there's, there are agricultural practices out there that are really damaging um, not just the soil, which is like essential to life, um, but they're damaging, you know, the whole ecology and conversely, they're really not beneficial to human health, you know. Mm -hmm. It's sad because there is a way of farming tea that's beneficial to like all life and evolution. Mm -hmm. So... I, I do make a clear distinction in terms of, um, I think, farming. I think that's what's really most important. Like, that's the real fundamental thing. How you, how you drink tea is totally like, I don't think there is a wrong way to drink tea. That's like saying, is there a wrong way to have a conversation? Yeah. You know, there's no right or wrong answer. Um, I would say this, though, that uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, that for sure order is the mother of freedom. And so if... If you're finding yourself really passionate about tea and wanting to express yourself more um, through uh, the art of tea, because make no mistake about it, tea is an art, mm -hmm. it's best to choose a tradition and stick to it. Mm. And the reason is, is that um, the limitation of a given tradition, whether it's, um, you know, Uda Senke, the Chanoyu school, or... Um, like the school that Global Tea Hut has, for mm -hmm. example, um, by by really focusing on a singular tradition, you're going to have the ability to express yourself to a much greater depth than you would if you kind of focused vaguely and broadly. Mm -hmm. And um, a good example of that is also language. Like if you want to be able to fully express yourself in another language, you really have to study it deeply. Mm -hmm. If you want to be able to write it and speak it fluently and express yourself poetically you really you you there's no shortcut to developing um you know all the tools and techniques you know which are the you know the nouns and the verbs and the adjectives of that language you have mm -hmm. to you just have to get in there and study it so if if tea is something that you want to pursue as an art i would suggest that you find yourself you associate yourself with a school of tea that's been practicing an art that has a deep continuity, that has a very specific orderly way. They have a, um, you know, they have kind of codified methods and metrics and specific rituals. Mm -hmm. um, that's something, that's a, I'm not saying one is better than the next, but that it's worth, um, you know, anchoring yourself to one so that you can develop, um, develop yourself and your ability to express yourself through that specific uh, language. Well, it gives you an orientation yeah. towards the other, towards any new tea uh, uh, schools of thought that you encounter. Right, mm. like it gives you a bearing of the of the of the I guess the cultural and artistic landscape of right. tea, as opposed to not having really any perspective. 
right. at all, which can be disorienting. And <laughs> I don't know if you'd stay in the community very long. Yeah, and I don't know how many people want to use tea as an art form. Mm-hmm. And they say they see themselves as tea artists who want to create tea ceremonies. You know, art is really about expressing subjective value, like mm-hmm. like taking your internal values and communicating them to the objective world. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so I don't know how many people want you know necessarily are like looking at tea from such a high place from such a lofty i i super crazy appreciate the people who are mm-hmm. but um maybe not everybody wants to utilize their tea practice as a way of communicating their their deeper hearts kind of like their their core values maybe that's just not something that that, that maybe people just want something that's good and delicious and slightly mm-hmm. caffeinated and and healthy for you and I don't think you lose, I don't, I don't necessarily think something is lost fundamentally when you just want a good cup of tea versus uh, you're setting a, you know, a tea ceremony in order to, you know, really create this profound moment. Both are good. Both have equal value in my, in my book. It, what's, you have to answer whether, which one's more valuable to you. Right. You know. So, I, you know, I really glad to hear you know you're super interested in um i guess the, the sustainable farming techniques hmm. um is what's i guess what's in the what's the biggest obstacle to expanding with sustainable farming is it is it that that tea is just is it a price issue i don't or think do it's a price not, issue okay um i think there's m- multiple obstacles um one of the big ones is um the, the marketplace as a whole right now is that if we if we do our as a business owner if we do our purchasing um, based on consumer demands the the bottom line is the average consumer is uneducated about how tea is made mm-hmm. so if we subjugate ourselves to the price demands the flavor demands the blending demand you know the the demands of the average consumer, what we're doing is we're making decisions. Um, it's, it's a little bit counter, it's maybe a little bit anti, it's undemo, un, undemocratic, mm-hmm. but I don't mean it in a, in a way that's antithetical to democratic, but, or to the democratic method. But if we, if we make our decisions based on the gross consumer, mm-hmm. and I also don't, I don't mean gross by, um, like disgusting, but just the broad like consumer base. Yeah. yeah, the math grows. Um, we're going to be making uneducated decisions in terms of production. Mm-hmm. So one of the big hurdles is just the the cons- the consumer's awareness of how their tea is being made, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's um, a hurdle of possibilities of potentialities and possibilities. The consumer is unaware that there's that there's a way of growing tea that's detrimental to the environment and actually detriment like if we destroy the environment it's not good for people right. uh, <laughs> who would have thought right we live in the environment yeah the agrochemicals aren't good for people right so there are ways of, of farming tea that um, are orders of magnitude healthier for both people and for the environment mm-hmm. and so just being aware that our con- our actions as consumers are um, affecting that type of agriculture and you know 
deciding whether or not that matters, I think is one of the, the big hurdles is like, does the average person care how their tea is grown? And if the average person does care, what are the metrics? Like how, how does that consumer, you know, kind of do a vetting process? Like how, mm. how do they find purveyors um, who share their values and who give them, you know, access to the places and the people who are growing their tea? Not everybody has full-time um, luxury of going out and sourcing their tea. So how can we, um, how, how can the consumers, fall, A, fall in love with that type of agriculture, understand the necessity of that type of agriculture, and then B, find purveyors who are committed to that type of agriculture. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the big evol- evolutions that we're going to see as an industry as a whole is transparency. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I work with a lot of farmers who have their own smartphones, they have their own cameras, they, they're learning English faster and faster. The, the gap between people is getting shorter and shorter, or smaller and smaller. So I think transparency um, in agriculture is just going to be a natural progression. And so, um, you know, my hope is that the consumer base um, has the, you know, shares this basic core values. and gets interested in supporting people who are farming um, in a way that's that's good for everybody. Yeah. So I think that's one hurdle. And then the other main hurdle is um, just from just from a business standpoint and from a logistical standpoint, the challenge that I had <clears throat> in terms of the long-term commitment to that type of agriculture was how to best support the farmer. So. How, so how, what do I do with that consumer base once I have that consumer base? And mm-hmm. it's also kind of complex. There's, there's a lot going on. We, we need to make sure that the more, the more consumers we have, the more people we can get to fall in love with this, um, this type of product, the more capital, the more energy, the more resources that we can channel towards this type of agriculture. And I, I don't think it's something that will be fixed overnight or even in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. I just think it's it's something that we need to begin working on and it's yeah. the it's the project that I'm most interested in participating in in tea. You know, like, I'm not super interested in, um, I don't know, the next great blend. I'm more interested in, hey, how do we get more and more people to support the type of agriculture that is good for everybody? Well, it sounds like there's there there will there 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 should there needs to be and, and is is happening right now. I, I guess a not to use like a '60s term, but like consciousness cha- <laughs> change in the con- in the public consciousness yeah. of the tea buying public. Right. Because if their consciousness changes with regards to how they orient themselves to tea uh, as a, as a consumer, then that's going to change their relationship to their retailer, to their cafe owner, and when that relationship changes, then you'll probably see a lot of change really quickly because it's coming from the end user. It's coming from, yeah. the, the, from, the, from the demand side of the equation, not just the supply side of the equation where people are very passionate and care about stuff. You can't, people aren't going to buy your amazing tea. Yep. It, 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 with the system we have, it, it won't matter. We just need to, it's a, it's a, it's a game of understanding what's, possible and it's equally as important for the tea vendor as it is the consumer Mm -hmm. right and the consumer is really active and 
is really responsive. I mean, we've seen a huge growth in organic um, food production, people asking and demanding for better organic products. There's been a revolution in the U.S. through like companies like Whole Foods mm-hmm. and Patagonia. Like, those are rad movements that are taking place. We just need a um, a language and a target in terms of what it means to really support um, to, to to grow in a sustainable way. There needs to be a, an open dialogue. Um, kind of open source Mm -hmm. Um, that's the other big thing is like there needs to be a way for us to access what's really fundamentally important in terms of growing healthy tea a healthy environment and healthy people and unfortunately uh, what it means to be organic is clouded it's convoluted and or you know just because you have an organic certification doesn't mean you have a healthy soil right and it also organic doesn't certify delicious as well yeah, that's a big hurdle, I think, probably with, the, with the, yeah. I guess, the PR side of it. Is, yeah. uh, as, as more people gain that term in their vocabulary, what's happening in the mind, I, I think that there's a disconnect sometimes between what happens in the mind of the consumer and what happens in the mind of people hmm. who are more in whatever industry it is. Yeah. And they think about their field versus how it's presented. And sometimes it's just a lack of communication, and sometimes we have to deal with the fact that we have um, I, I can't help myself, antecedently individuated people, and there's nothing we can do about the fact that we're, people are going to have their own uh, have their own like idea about what a term means. Right. And the only solution to that is to just keep talking to them and create a relationship, so building relationships with, with uh, the other side of the table, you know, the other side of the counter is really important, which is one of the reasons why I just like the shop so much is because... Yeah. You know, you as I was saying, and you know, earlier in the episode, if you come here to have tea, like you can't turn your back to you <laughs> and have tea. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> That's not going to happen. We're, they have to interact with you, and and building relationships uh, is really critical uh, in getting people involved and getting people to care and to come back, and and ultimately that's going to make our our just going to improve tea culture, and it's going to improve. Literally, you know, the planet where in, in parts of the world where tea is grown. Yeah, I'm interested in in reminding people that human beings um, can actually uh, not just live sustainably on the planet, but we can actually participate in activities that benefit evolution. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a context. There's a story going around that like, oh, human activity, like. You know, humans were just we're we're the you know we're responsible for the greatest mass extinction event in you know an entire epoch. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, forty percent of the biodiversity that was around before we were here is now gone, and that you know human beings just by their nature are gonna create chaos and destruction in the world. And mm-hmm. okay, yeah, that's happening. To a certain extent, but there are human beings who, by their very nature, are increasing biodiversity on their farm. And so we have this potentiality to nourish life. And, um, you know, the more people who participate in that, the better. And yes, we we have both. Like, we can burn the forest to the ground, or we can... We can make the habitat richer for 
not just for us, but for all of the species of the forest. Mm -hmm. And we can do that. Um, we can do one or the other. We can do both. And it's like, I'm more interested in nourishing life than, um, you know, whatever the antithesis of that yeah. is. So just like raising awareness, reminding people that we have that capacity, um, setting that context that like, hey, we're people, we, we can make things radder. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, I don't think I'm necessarily reinventing the wheel as much as just reminding my consumers, um, reminding my customers, um, interacting with farmers, and just living based on that kind of off that ground. Um, I just, you know, those are the gardens that I like to drink tea from. Those are the gardens yeah. I like to be in. Uh, those are the people I like to hang out with. I, it feels really weird to step onto a field where there's only one plant and there's a funny smell in the air. It's not, it's not the place I want to drink tea from. So, I, more than anything, it's just letting people know that there is uh, this whole other thing that's happening. And hey, maybe you might want to participate in it. Maybe you want to drink the teas that we're drinking we think they're the best teas mm -hmm. you know maybe you want to come hang out in these gardens or invest in these gardens or ensure that they're around for generations to come maybe that's something that you want but you didn't know it was possible so i think a lot of what i do is just communicate that as a possibility and let people know that that these things are happening and that provide them greater access to participate in that type of activity Cool. So, so you're, um, you know, so as, as we wrap up here, uh, you, you, pretty soon we're gonna have a new website that's a little more consumer facing. Yep. You got great photography on your website now as mm -hmm. we record this, but hopefully by the time it airs, or in the future, it'll it'll be changed. It'll be changed, and we can have the really cool, uh, n you know, new, very, very mobile, consumer friendly, uh, facing kind of website. Uh, How's that going, and uh, what could we expect with like your tea club? You know that you, yeah. you said you wanted to bring out. Like, what's that going to be like? Yeah, I, uh, Wednesday is what I'm told by the development team. Okay, cool. And so we have a uh, two days from now. Um, this website we've just put a lot of time and effort and energy yeah. into will be up and running. And again, it's just um, it's a it's a a digital version of the shop. The idea is to introduce people to teas that are grown in a regenerative fashion and give them access to the season's best. Um, I think the, the main uh, product on the site that I'm really excited about is my monthly subscription. And it's my, my pet project for ensuring um, my customers get access to the very best of what's in season. A lot of people don't realize that being an ag agricultural product and being produce, tea is very much like a seasonal product. So there's the time of the year when the green tea is the best, there's the time of the year when the light oolong tea is the best, there's the time of the year when black teas are really coming into their peak or roasted oolongs or um, a time of the year when it really makes sense to drink some some heavy rich poor mm -hmm. and so what um, what I've built is a tea club which is dedicated on getting people the best of what I have access to in the season mm -hmm. and it's just gonna be a way for me to have a, a really fun exciting online dialogue and invite people into that that cycle that we were talking about at the beginning 
the season and the cycle of tea. Um, for, I know you're like this, Barry. Like we're when it's green teas coming down off the mountain, we're flipping out. Like yeah. it's all we're drinking, you know. And when the oolong tea is here, that's what we're. We want the freshest of what's available. There's this excitement um, in the summer months. It's hot, so we're drinking cooling tea. In the winter months, it's cold. We're drinking warmer tea. We're. I know you're very much tied to the seasons and the cycles as well. So. Um, you know what what we've designed is a platform to create a community of people who want to experience the seasons and the cycles of tea but also a platform of people who are really interested in investing in regenerative ag agriculture and natural farming so we know as a community as a group our tea club every month can go to the farm and um, as a whole we can invest in that farmer and get mm -hmm get first access to the to, to these teas. So it's something I'm really excited about. Yeah, I'm can't wait for it to launch. I can't wait to see what we're gonna what's what's coming up. I'm 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 pumped for it. So Yeah. Well then thank you so much for uh for for coming on uh to the show here. Um when I started like the first person I thought of I gotta get Taylor. <laughs> so and, do uh, I. Uh, that was like the first person. I was like, well, I, I know who I'm, I'm gonna immediately send an email to, and uh, it's taken a little, it's taken a little bit to, over the holidays and stuff to, to finally get us in, in the room together, but totally worth it. So thanks so much. Is there anything you wanna, I guess, put out there before we turn, before we uh, turn the mic off? No, man. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy drinking tea with you. I learned a lot drinking tea with you. Your perspective is super valuable to me, and uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, man. Thank you.